welcome, Tim, to Text on Texts. You're our, our first ever guest, so thank you for, for doing this with me. You're welcome. No, it's, it's really an honor, and um, it's just it's uncanny just kind of like how, how perfect you are as a first guest for this uh, because you've actually even written your own blog posts about literature that's influenced you. And uh, that's precisely what I'm, I'm trying to do here with this project is showcase the importance of literature on, on technologists and their careers and, and how it's influenced the, the world that we, we live in now uh, that's increasingly yeah. mediated by technology. I'm curious to get an update on like how you describe yourself, but also if you consider yourself a technologist, that's an interesting question. I, I, I guess I've never really thought of myself as a, quote, technologist. I've thought of myself as maybe a map maker, a storyteller. I think of myself as a, maybe a scientist in the sense that I'm trying to make sense of the world around me. I think of a technologist as somebody who uses techne uh, to actually build things. And, and I don't really do that. I, I explain things. And a lot of what I explain is technology, but uh, that doesn't make me a technologist. Interesting. I mean, although I'll, I'll push back on that a little bit. I mean, I think you you wield technology in pretty interesting ways, but I, I, perhaps you don't. You're not building technology, but you certainly have wielded technology to do what you do. Is that fair yeah, to say? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's true. I've been an early adopter, and, and in some you know fairly important ways, I have been a technology pioneer. I mean, after all, we. We created the first ad-supported website. Uh, you know, we created oh, wow. the uh, uh, you know the earliest web portal. Uh, so, you know, I, I played a pretty major role in getting people to think differently about open source software. And, but again, I see a lot more of that as uh, what you could call meme engineering than actual software engineering. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to take a note on on this this idea of meme engineering because I think it's. Yeah. It itself is a great meme, so we'll come back to that. What prompted me to to reach out to you was to talk about Dune. You've written a biography or the biography of, of Frank Herbert. Um, the only one. It's not. It, okay. It's not properly oh. speaking a biography. It's really a book about his books with highlights yeah. on his life. And I should say it was written in I think it was 1978. It came out in 1981. I started in 78, so I, I'm not sure exactly when I finished it. It really goes only up through Children of Dune uh, for okay. those who are fans of the later books, which I am not particularly. Same. <laughs> uh, same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I first read Dune when I was 11 years old. I still remember bringing it home from the library. It was it, I, I found it at a library that was far enough away that my father had to drive me. And he sees, oh, wow. sees this enormous you know, volume. Let me actually get it. Down here. Oh, is this it? Like this is the book. No, this is this, this is, is a book. copy of the same edition. Oh, yeah, it's not from the library. Yeah, the, old, yeah. the original Chilton, you know. Wow. By the way, it's an interesting story there. You realize it was published by Chilton, the car repair manual people. Uh, I didn't. Frank, oh Frank no. Got rejected by two hundred different publishers. But anyway, I, I I was driving home and my 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 father looks at it and he said he, very conservative Catholic. He says. It's sinful that so large a book should be devoted to science fiction. <laughs> I almost oh. used that as the uh, a little epigraph when I wrote my book. Anyway, it had well, a big it, it had a big impact on me in a variety of ways, and I could talk about that if you want. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the point here is trying to understand how literature shapes people. The funny thing about being like an eleven year old, you know, my daughter's eleven, and I have to constantly remind myself that like my favorite bands I discovered when I was like eleven 
Like I'm yeah. still obsessed with like that, that music. I think yeah. I read Dune when I was like 14 and I was just fascinated by it. I am curious to know like, well, you know, what, it's fabulous. Yeah, what because, that was like for you. I mean, there were obviously there was a class of young adult science fiction. I mean, I started reading science fiction when I was in second grade. And by the time I was 11 or 12, I was reading everything, you know, but still I have a, had a special place in my heart for the kinds of books where the protagonist is a teenager. You know? Right, right. You, you relate to that. So Andre Norton, you know, books like uh, The Stars Are Ours, which was one of my all-time favorite books, uh, or The Time Traders, you know, which is a time travel novel by Andre Norton, or, or you know, Heinlein's Juveniles, like Time for the Stars or A Farmer in the Sky. They all had young adult protagonists that you could really relate to. And Dune is sort of atypical in that it's not actually a young adult science fiction novel, but it does have a young protagonist. To me, there's something about that ability to identify with the hero of a novel that's very powerful. It lifts you out of yourself. You can identify with that. You know, and I was the I was the sort of the geeky kid and that and it was a little bit like the same attraction of, of, of Marvel comics. Wait, there's a lot more to you than everybody thinks. And you see circumstances call out the best in you. And of course, you know, it wasn't that much later. Star Wars came out in, in 77. So I was like 23. Right. And I still remember thinking, oh my God, you know, George Lucas, he just nailed that. Here he is. You know, he, he's got, it's, it's almost like the, the hero's journey, this kind of kid. And he's just waiting for fate to come along and, and hand him an adventure and a, and a quest. Anyway, but, but the, that was part of what appealed, but there was another there were some other things that really jumped out at me and, and really became, in a certain sense, part of my character and part of my mental furniture. And one of them is a scene that I was that they I didn't think they did sufficient justice to in in Dune in the movie of Dune. And that was the scene where uh, Duke Leto uh, goes down and risks his life to rescue the stranded uh, spice miners. Liet Kynes, uh, or Keynes, I'm not sure how you were supposed to pronounce his name, says he would give his life for them. And it really stuck with me that that was a key quality of leadership. You're making a deal with the people who follow you. You're saying, you follow me and my job is to make it worth your while and to look after you. And that was really reinforced by another book I read a few years later. It was a signed reading, so I would have been maybe 13, going on 14. It was a, a historical novel called The Golden Warrior about Harold, the okay. last of the Saxon kings, and, who, who was defeated by William the Conqueror in Normandy. And I still remember, I, I read it in, in the Lake District in England. We were staying at a place by the headwaters of the River Derwent, which is where actually Harold had fought uh, somewhere further down towards York. Harold had fought off his half-brother Tostig and the Vikings before Williams in, invaded in the South. Everybody was like, you got you got to regroup. you got to regroup. At least as told in the novel, he's like, no, that's not the deal. You know, he's raping right. and pillaging. The deal is you follow me, I protect you. Right. And it just really stuck for me. And I kind of feel like I always took that as, as kind of a key principle of business. You know, you're asking people to work for you. You better you have a real responsibility to them if you're asking people to follow you somewhere. So you, you, you feel like you internalized this at 11, like you were like, you I did. Understood I the contract. Uh, yeah, yeah. 11, 12, 13, 14. It really became yeah. a key concept for me. 
But probably the other thing, uh, maybe a bigger thing, was I started working with this guy named George Simon, who was uh, it was actually he, at the time he was sort of leading a an explorer group about nonverbal communication. But he developed a whole bunch okay. of stuff based on gen, a combination of general semantics and the integral yoga of Sri Aurobindo. It was a lot about thinking about the future evolution of human consciousness and just the evolution of human consciousness in general. Yeah, you know, I remember taking, uh, giving him Dune to read because I thought, oh, this is that's what this is also about. Yeah, <laughs> and of course, I grew up in San Francisco in the '60s. My brothers and I, I remember we we were experimenting with psychedelics, and like two of us, we drew, drew lots. So two two of us would uh, take take the drug, and the other one would take notes. You know, <laughs> oh, oh, perfect. That's great. <laughs> uh, that whole idea of the spice unlocking human potential. You know, right. reading books like Albus Huxley, The Doors of Perception, which was, of course, based on that great quote of Blake's, you know, if the doors of perception were cleansed, uh, everything would appear as it is infinite. Dune had that very compelling vision of that, but it also had a very compelling vision of how uh, to respond to the future. And actually, I wrote about that. I was actually just before we I pulled down my book to see if I could find this passage that I wrote. The introduction uh, to my book on on Frank Herbert is called Dancing on the Edge. In it, I say, it's a general principle of ecology that an ecosystem is stable, not because it is secure and protected, but because it contains such diversity that some of its many types of organisms are bound to survive despite drastic changes in the environment or other adverse conditions. Herbert adds, however, that the effort of civilization to create and maintain security for its individual members, quote, necessarily creates the conditions of crisis because it fails to deal with change. And that I really took in, and I feel like it's always, you know, certainly if you look at my career, it's been a history of looking at the world with fresh eyes and trying to make sense of things as they are rather than as they used to be and accepting that, that nothing is permanent. Uh, and, you know, and of course, all kinds of echoes come off of that. I mean, there was an early, much earlier science fiction book called The World of Null A by A.E. Van Vogt, which was about general semantics, yeah. which was also about this uh, idea, which I got from, from George Simon, but which is, is really about uh, the central idea of Korzybski's, which is the map is not the territory. And we often, right. make, we often make mistakes because we get locked in a map, which is a set of abstractions from reality, and we don't look back to see if it's still correct. So I had developed a, a, a set of, of tools working with this guy, George Simon, uh, for training myself to realize when I was in the map and when I was looking at something freshly and, and just how do you, you just sort of step back and let yourself process something. And it was sort of an experiential practice that I had learned with him and actually helped him teach actually at Esalen when I was 18 years old. But anyway, when I, when I wrote the oh, wow. book, when I, when I was 23, 24, you know, I was reflecting on all of this and kind of telling a story about the world as a place that is radically uncertain. And our yeah. job is to find balance. So images like things like surfing or kayaking or where you're dealing with a turbulent reality and you're responding. And so that became yeah. a, a big part of my mental framing of part of what one needs to do in response to life. 
Right. And of course, there was another piece of it, which is going far afield from science fiction, which is Lao Tzu, uh, the Chinese philosopher. Yeah. And he says, uh, let life ripen and then fall. Will is not the way at all. Another great quote is, he's, is one of his passages talking about the qualities of the wise man. He goes down this list, and then one of them is royal as a torrent. And he says, why royal as a torrent? Because sometimes there's nothing to do but wait until the stream clears. You know? <laughs> How do you get in that space of receptivity so that you can see things as they are and not keep fighting reality? Basically, I've taken in so many yeah. of these books that I've read over the years. They become part of your internal language. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of this idea that language is a map is also language is a tool, a toolkit. Right. You know, if you can't, if you don't have words for a thing, it's very hard to talk about it. That's and right. once you have words for it, you can see it differently. But we also have to be testing our words. We have to make sure that they mean what we think they mean. For example, the doors of perception. Great, yeah. great metaphor. Great way to sort of describe something like a mystical experience, right? Yeah. If I if I say the word mystical experience or that phrase, that yeah. might mean very different things to different people. I'm a big fan of of mystics, mystic poetry. Yeah, um, and I think Dune. I mean, like you've said, like sort of a, a huge theme of Dune and the spice mm -hmm. is that it does engender some kind of mystic experience. It does seem a lot like a psychedelic experience, right? Yeah, that allows you to see the world as it is. But then there's the question, I think what's so interesting about Dune, actually, I have a, a passage from the introduction to your biography. You really summarize some of the stuff that makes Dune so interesting. Uh, you say Dune contains ecology, mysticism, and a kind of hard-headed insistence on the relativity of human perception that limits human knowledge. I'm curious to get your take on, on that last part. Okay, so you've opened the doors of perception, you've seen the world as it is. Then what do you do with that? Dune has an interesting story to tell about that, I think, but I'm curious to get your take on on well, more about this idea of the limits of human knowledge. It's kind of interesting because when I, I hear that passage, it, I was obviously in some sense synthesizing Frank, but also kind of telling, I was yeah, in yeah. conversation with him with my own ideas. Because I mean, for example, right. I know he had studied general semantics as well. Okay. In fact, I remember him telling me um, there was a professor at San Francisco State, S.I. Hayakawa, and I remember Frank telling me about the S.I. Hayakawa leading a nude snake dance <laughs> down, <laughs> down from the, at Esalen, down to the baths. <laughs> oh, man. Good old days. Uh, but, but so he was familiar with general semantics, but actually that particular, the ends of that passage were actually influenced by my reading of Carl Jaspers, a German philosopher who I read mm -hmm. when Frank had told me that the Santa Rosa barrier was, uh, you know, in many ways influenced by Jaspers. And Jaspers' thing was that uh, was ultimately that, you know, we are defined by our limits. Right. And, the, the, you know, we have to, uh, and our ability to confront our limits and look at them squarely, uh, you know, with the limit of death, the limit of what's not possible. And can we, can yep. we live with that, you know, or do we turn away from it and pretend otherwise? And so that was a, an echo of, something I learned through my conversations with Frank in the course of writing the book. <laughs> okay. What are the sort of the practical applications of this? What comes to my mind, I mean, given what I, I tend to work on is big data and, and a lot of earth observation data where we have instruments that can see wavelengths of light that we can't see with our eyes, right? So we're actually able to create instruments, create technology that lets us see things that we can't see. It extends our limits, our limitations, or it lets us transcend them. But then what? Right. So we have more information, but like there is this 
limit in terms of what we can do. Actually, I, I'll, I'll leave you a little bit here. I know that you're a big fan of Dune Messiah, the book, and I'm just, I want to get your take on like, what, what can we learn from Paul's story in terms of like, you know, what happens when you, know, you actually can see the future? Like, what, what are the implications of that? Before I go there, sure, let sure. me just sort of say a little bit about, you know, this interesting dialogue with reality and our limits. Right. You know, part of our job as human beings is to extend our limits. And part of that yeah. means understanding them. I had a great experience of, of that just last weekend at SIFU, uh, our science foo camp, uh, down okay. there, which we have hold with Nature and Google. And Irene Pepperberg was there. She's the woman who has studied parrot speech for many years. And she she, she said that, you know, that the, the parrots um, fail what they call the mirror test for self-awareness. You know, like primates will recognize themselves in the mirror. Right. And said parrots. But then she realized that uh, parrots actually, the, in addition to the three colors that, you know, our, our primary colors, they also see in the ultraviolet. Right. And it occurred to her that maybe they don't recognize themselves because there's no ultraviolet mirror. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and I was like, cool, we can fix that. Yeah. <laughs> and I hooked her up with someone from the MIT Media Lab who was there. I said, hey, do you think you can you build something that so that the parrots can see themselves in the extended spectrum? I don't know if it's going to produ produce anything or not, but you kind of go, oh, you've identified a limit. And then you go, we, we can right. push that limit. We can test it. Yeah, no, I love that. And I love that sort of the bias that it shows, which is like, yeah, exactly. Can, you know, yeah, I can see myself in a mirror. So anything should be able to see itself in a mirror. And it's like, no, that's an exactly. instrument that we and built all, for ourselves. All we've actually done is identify how, how dumb we are that we think that we're <laughs> right. the only way, you know, and right. I think about that all the time with, uh, with my dog. She's like avidly sniffing. I'll, sometimes I'll get down on my hands and knees and kind of try to see what if I can smell what she's smelling. And of course I can't. You know, you think, oh my God, our sensorium is so limited and we live in this narrow little band and we pretend that it's everything. And, and obviously right. we've done pretty well with it as a species, but we don't often have enough perspective, I guess I would say. Totally agree. I mean, yeah, we've done well with it in terms of like our ability to continue to grow as a population. Yeah. So on to Dune Messiah. <laughs> yeah. So Frank's purpose in Dune was, as he said, he'd always planned to write three books. He was trying to tell the story of a Messiah as a way of reflecting back to people that this, this is the idea of, of giving over all your trust to somebody else is a bad idea. You know? Right. And so he had, it had to go wrong. And so he builds up the superhero and then the superhero effectively gets trapped. And the particular trap that he's in is if you can see the future, you try to shape it in such a way right. that you will pick the best future. And that gets you into a kind of stasis. This work I'd done with George Simon, there was a lot of like trying to let in the unknown, you know, like just kind of, okay, I don't know what I don't know, but I can, I can, I can let it in and let it speak to me anyway. You know, this is part of this right. distinction between uh, being open to uh, something more than what you've already been able to process and label. And, and so there I am, you know, we, we can let this in and okay, so I, what is the right choice? You know, let me try to just right. intuit it and be open to it, even if I don't know what it is. And, 
and, and I did experience some of that feeling of stasis that that Frank talked about, where you're always kind of. And, and I had some other friends who were part of uh, who had also worked with George, and it was it was something it was very real to us, you know that that, that was a, a real thing he'd put his finger on. And it was another science fiction book actually that helped me get out of that. And it's a book that's not all that well known. And it's it's many ways it's very dated, but very very formative for me. It's a book called Rissa Kerguelen. The title is the name of the main character. It was at one point it was published as a uh, trilogy. It's now usually a, a single long book. It may may well be out of print. One of the volumes was called The Long View, and it played on the trope, uh, uh, you know, which that had used in a lot of science fiction, like as you approach light speed, time goes uh, more slowly for the person at near light speed, something that fell out of Einsteinian theory. In this particular here, they, they have a, you know, a cold sleep kind of drive, uh, you know, where people put into suspended animation. And, you know, what they have to do is they they have to set plans in motion and go meet up with them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Interesting. And, which is a different kind of thing. You, you're going right. to know that, that you, you can't you know, predict the future, but you can kind of anticipate certain things and you can try to meet up with it. Right. And that became a really important concept for me. I was just starting my company at the time when I read it. I was, you know, I don't know, you know, my late 20s. And I had that sense of like, oh, I'm going to set some things in motion that are going to take 5, 10, 15 years. And the thing yeah. I'm trying to get to, you know, are, are, are somewhere out there. Right. And that's a different approach than trying to bring it all into yourself and somehow manage it. It's, and that kind that's of goes right. back to that theme uh, from that earlier quote of, of kind of surfing the uncertainty. The other thing that was really great in that book, it was a, a, a book in which the, the, the earth was uh, dominated by huge companies with hereditary leadership uh, where they yeah, cloned yeah. themselves and they, they were on, on forever. And, and, and the resistance was small entrepreneurial companies. And that was also very shaping for me. You know, it was like, oh, if you want to make change, don't join the big guys, make your own way. They, those two ideas from uh, uh, FM Busby's uh, Rissa Kerguelen were pretty big for me. Yeah, and, and they yeah. were in, in kind of in a kind of dialogue with with Dune Messiah. The other thing that, yeah. that I have to say, uh, I, I'm not sure I, I entirely agree with it, but it always stuck in my head. There's a point in Dune Messiah, and again, I hope I'm not giving away. You know, uh, it's it's old it's, enough. It's I don't old care enough. about spoilers. We, we have to worry yeah. about spoilers, but yeah, uh, there's a a, a point in where Paul says to Duncan Idaho, you know, you know, mm. he's expressing, "What do I do?" And and Duncan says reward your friends and punish your enemies. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I know I'm not sure how I feel about that, but it always stuck in my head, you know, certainly the reward your friends. And of course that, you know, again, if you look at the way my mind works is this fight away of connections, because of course that reminds me of one of my favorite stories uh, from uh, ancient Greece, which is the story of Diogenes meeting Alexander the Great. I don't know. This one. Is the is the the philosopher who lived in a barrel. Yeah. Uh, what are those? Uh, yeah, the cynic. You know, where will I find an honest man? Uh, Alexander comes and says, "I, you know, I admire your philosophy. You know, I'd like to give you riches." Uh, Diogenes says, "Look at me. I live in a barrel. What use do I have of riches?" 
And Alexander had the better of the, of, of the exchange because he said, have you no friends? Right. <laughs> In some ways, that probably was the seed corn for my, you know, enduring business principle, create more value than you capture. Right. You know, it's like, it's like, if you have power, use it to benefit others. But I mean, this is, but this is the trap, right? That they, like, that's kind of like how the trap gets set. Mm -hmm. uh, I can imagine, which is that like, so you've built an empire or, you know, yeah. like Paul, you've, you're suddenly taking yeah. control of an empire. Um, there's a str like strong conservatism seeps in because a lot of people are like, okay, this is the way things are and the way they should be. And you have a yeah. lot of people kind of becoming dependent on that. And yeah. how do you guard against that? How, yeah, how do you know. remain open? I, I have to say, I like to think that there could have been a version of Dune that went a different direction. <laughs> okay. Uh, or of Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. Because in the end, uh, you know, we may fail. Basically, Paul, and in particular then his son, Leto II, you know, we're going to create this stasis and then we'll it'll break in a, you know, truly explosive way, which you know, remixes the gene pool. It's a big fan, you know, fanciful kind of narrative that, yeah, I go, no, you know, I, I'm a big believer in we keep trying, you know, right. again, brings me to another piece of literature, this wonderful poem uh, from Rilke, which I only read in translation from the German. So I, I feel justified in doing my own slightly different version of it. It's from a poem called The Man Watching, which I originally read in yeah. translation by Robert Bly. And it's about uh, uh, Jacob uh, wrestling with the angel. And there's actually a famous painting by Delacroix in, in uh, Saint-Sulpice in, in Paris that I love of this, of this story from the Bible. But yeah. uh, in it, Rilke says, what we fight with is so small. And when we win, it makes us small. What we want is to be defeated decisively by successively greater things. It actually is greater being because yeah. it's describing angels. But I think, right, right. yeah, I, I use this in a talk I did in 2008 at our ETEC conference, a talk I, I called Why I Love Hackers. <laughs> hmm. And, uh, you know, because it's like they're, tr they're struggling with hard problems and not thinking that they're necessarily going to win. Right. You know, you know, versus, you know, a lot of, you know, what's gone wrong, in my opinion, in Silicon Valley, it's all about, you know, getting rich as opposed to just right, like, right. you know, whereas the most interesting, you know, startups have been like, I just want to do this shit. You know, like when Larry and Sergey started Google, they weren't thinking, you know, right, oh, right. wow, we can be insanely rich. They were thinking, wow, we could actually make the web more useful. I and mean, we have this cool idea for how to do it. You know, let's give it a try. And that whole uh, sort of, ex and again, this is that, that going back to this, idea that the fundamental goal of humans is mm -hmm. to face up to the unknown and to do our best to chip away at it. There's always more. The unknown is infinite. In fact, my, right, my right. friend George Simon, who I referred to earlier, used to say uh, his definition of God was et cetera, all the rest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Oh, that's great. No, I mean, it's, it's, I'm so glad you said this because I mean, this is really, I'll just like, you know, say it out loud. Like, that's why I wanted to start this project is all interesting technology, I do think is motivated by something very human, like a human curiosity and striving, and sort of like what you mentioned before, like a, a desire to transcend our limitations. And um, 
I also, yeah, I feel like it's been lost. I mean, I guess throughout my career, you know, I, I increasingly encounter people that are, they've been trained to only think about optimizing stuff. Yeah. Know, or like to crush it, you know? Um, and I, I just think we're, we're missing out on a lot if we forget yeah. the sort of the origins of, of all of this stuff and like well, why and, we go about it. Yeah. And just the, and it really goes back to this idea of limits. You know, one of our fundamental, fundamental limits is, is death. And we know that we can't take it with us. So right. why are we so obsessed with accumulating more? And again, this gives you another piece of uh, a little view of my my literature. I'm a huge fan of Samuel Johnson, uh, the guy who wrote the first dictionary of English of the English language. Oh, what he was okay. most famous for. But he was a brilliant essayist. He wrote a, a poem called "The Vanity of Human Wishes," which is actually a translation of a Latin poem by Juvenal. Uh, but he also wrote this short sort of proto novel called Rasselas. And in it, this okay. it's basically it's sort of Rasselas, a prince of Abyssinia, this supposed prince who's kind of goes out to get his education. He's been locked away and he goes out to get his education in the world. He's traveling with his tutor. And the scene that I most remember is one where they go to Egypt and his tutor, Imlach, says, I consider the pyramids to be a monument to the insufficiency of all human enjoyments. He who was built for use till use is supplied must begin to build for vanity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, I remember I, I sent Jeff Bezos a copy of Rasselas once. <laughs> oh, wow. After, after <laughs> I had told him about that, that fabulous passage. That was many, many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Bezos is on record as saying that Remains of the Day is his, is his favorite novel. So uh, maybe one day we'll get him on the podcast. To yeah, well, talk again, about I mean, that. I, Jeff is actually a very thoughtful guy. I mean, I, I you know, he used Clearly. to come to our ETEC conference and I put on dinners for him with interesting people. And we had the best time, uh, you know, as, as, as obviously as Amazon grew, uh, uh, he, he uh, I don't know whether he changed or just, you know, it was the, PR strategy, whatever, but yeah, you know, we, we haven't talked in, in, in years, but uh, I, I do have, you know, he, he, he's, he's very interesting. Yeah. And, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I don't have to apologize. I'm a big fan. I mean, I, I spent eight years at AWS on purpose. You know, I just think AWS is incredible. Um, yeah. So yeah, he's really, and, he's really brilliant. Yeah. And his, his first shareholders letter is, I think is a, is a great piece of writing. It's an incredible yeah. piece of writing. Um, so I'm not just blowing smoke, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, th that to me again is sort of like, I think one of the things that's so compelling about Dune is that it is, I think to the point you're making, like it's somewhat pessimistic, right? Uh, it's quite a bit, it's quite pessimistic, the whole story in that like Paul is effectively crushed by the, the knowledge and the power that he attains because he realizes he's effectively powerless or that he can't quite control I mean, just the fact that he knows what's going to happen doesn't necessarily mean that he can control things or make things happen in the right way, or he's not willing to. See, I, and, I don't know. But, I never read it as yeah. pessimistic. You think there's another version of Dune that could have gone another way? And I guess I'm curious to oh, oh, well, describe it's just, the two it's different It's just paths. like you keep trying, you know, even though you're going you're, mm -hmm. you're to be defeated. And, and in some right. ways, you could argue that that's actually what Paul does in Dune Messiah. You know, basically, he, he sets this thing free. I, I think I've never quite been comfortable with where it went in in Children of Dune. Right. 
Because... Well, I mean, did you, and you stopped there, right? You didn't read after that. Uh, I, I, no, I, 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 I think I read one or two of them, but I, I wasn't that fond of them. No, I. So for what it's worth, I've only I made it through God Emperor of Dune, and I was like, I've had enough. Yeah. Um, but I think I mean for those who are familiar with all the books, uh, you know, they, they they'll be able to follow what we're saying. But I, I'll just share like sort of my read on the situation. Um, and you can agree or disagree, but that yeah, this notion that like so Leto the second, effectively he's just like no, I'm going to go for it. I can see far much farther in the future than anybody else can. And I have a plan that's going to benefit everybody, but it's going to require like generations of suffering or misery or poverty yeah. or however you want to characterize it. And, but you just have to trust me. Um, and I, again, I didn't really want to read after that. Cause I was like, all right, I don't, the, the writing became pretty boring too, but um, it does describe, I, I guess, to my mind, a somewhat pessimistic path, which is the idea that if somebody did attain that kind of power that they could control the universe in yeah. that way, um, they would be, you know, they might be willing to make decisions that were inhumane. Um, yeah, I, and I, I don't think, think it right. makes sense to trust somebody like that. I, I think that's right, and and uh, I mean, people have in fact made that choice. Yeah, and and in some cases, it's even been, you know, again, it's it's not like it's unalloyed bad. You know, you look at right. uh, uh, Genghis Khan. You know, like. Brutal, but built, you know, kind of a, a civilization that that was uh, actually pretty good. Once he, once he conquered everybody, he kind of built a right. pretty pretty good thing. You know, it was right. one of, one of the the, the uh, most successful civilizations for some number, you know, hundreds of years. You could argue the same thing with with Rome. You know, you could even argue the same thing with the Pax Americana. You know, we've done right, some exactly. stuff that's so. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I think there's some truth to that, but I guess I, I just still kind of fe felt like, uh, I mean, some of it was just personal. Like I loved some of the characters, right. like I, you know, I, you know, it's hard to see Paul thrown away, hard to see Alia, Alia thrown away. I loved yeah. her, you know. She reminded me yeah. of my little sister Kate when I was, you know, when I was first, <laughs> when I first uh, was reading those books. Kate's uh, 16 years younger than me, and she was. Uh, is that six? No, not 16. 12 years younger than me. When she was born, I was just the right age to be the babysitter, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, she was really my first kid in a certain way. Uh, and she reminded you of Leah? She was very, yeah. you know, as were my daughters, very you know, prescient and very, yeah. you know, very adult in a certain way. It was like, oh, yeah, I, I recognize that little girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was it was painful to have her turn into somebody who became a, something of a villain. <laughs> you know, I, there's one other thing I want to talk about with this uh, that's just sparked in my mind by sure uh, this reference to Leto the second and yeah. his style of leadership. Uh, there, there's a, a series of historical novels that I read and truly love by a, a Scottish writer named Dorothy Dunnett. Uh, she wrote two series. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 the first one uh, 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 has six books in it, and the first book is called The Game of Kings. And they're about a, uh, a, mm. a Scottish you know, minor nobleman named Francis Crawford of Lyman. And uh, I, I remember uh, it turned out uh, Larry Wall, the creator of Pearl, his, his wife was a huge uh, Dorothy Dunnett fan also. 
and oh. her description of uh, of the book, she says, it's just kind of like Larry, you know, it's uh, just smarter than everyone around him. <laughs> you know? and, right. and, and what is it like to be uh, you know, smarter than everybody else? So Lyman always, you know, he sees things. He, he knows what has to be done. He knows that other people aren't going to be able to, to, to see it. This is in Pearl's heyday. Larry really was right. like that. Yeah, you know, he was just like, yeah, I'm going to do things differently. And, uh, yeah. uh, but I, I, it was very influential for me that like as a kind of, of guide to leadership that you're not always going to be liked. Sometimes you're going to have right. to actually oh, yeah. say, okay, I, I, I know something, I believe something, I'm going to act on it. Uh, you, you know, you're just going to have to trust me or, or in the case of Lyman, he basically would just go, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And everybody thinks I'm the bad guy. I'm okay with right. that. Yeah, you have and to at be. times yeah. when as a, as a, a leader, even in business, you have to take that position. Oh, absolutely. You have to say no all the time. You have to, you might yeah. have to lay people off. You might but have you to have to make them. hard choices. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. have to make hard choices. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just part of the yeah. part of the package. Um, but then actually, let's go back to the, the story of um, of Leto the first, you know, putting himself in in harm's way. Are there examples of this? Like, what, like, what is the equivalent of you putting yourself in the path of a of a sandworm <laughs> with your team? Well, I don't think I mean, you've owned your business, so you no, know. I've ne I've yeah. never had uh, uh, an opportunity for that. But you know, like when you know, with the dot com bust, was you know, I'd always had a very that had led me down the path of a very paternalistic kind of approach to business. And, and after the dot com bust, it was do layoffs or the whole company dies. You know, and right. And uh, we had to laugh 25% of our staff. I still remember, hmm. you know, looking at these books of, of, of names. I'm just, and, and I, like, I looked down this, all this hair on my binder, oh, like my hair was yeah. literally falling out. So I, was, I was so stressed by, by, you know, but I had to do it. But I, you know, first thing I did was, I, you know, I, I ended up making a personal guarantee for the, the loan, whatever loans I could get on the company. And, and uh, I didn't take a salary okay. for two or three years. <laughs> you know, wow. so it was kind of like, okay, I got to lay these people off, but I'm going to take as much of the pain on as I can. Yeah. 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 yeah no, and that's, it's a, it's a terrible thing to have to lay people off. I mean, I, yeah. I know. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that, again, as, as, as a leader, also like no one feels sorry for the guy laying people off, right? As they shouldn't, you know, they're the one that's not having like such yeah. a horrible day, but it's a really awful thing. And that's part of yeah. the, part it's of the very painful. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, so it's not quite the same. It's not, not, not the same thing at all. Uh, it's, it's not a sandworm. Yeah. Well, you're, but you're it's not, not you know, kind of these guys yeah. who, you know, oh, we have, you know, like if you look at the typical CEO narrative in America, oh, we must cut costs. Oh, thank right. you. Uh, let me take my, you know, hundred multi hundred million dollar pay package. <laughs> right. There's the, there's the very clear difference there. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's not a, it's not an, it, to me, I'll just say it for myself. It doesn't seem like a fair uh, agreement that I would want to be, that I yeah, would want exactly. to enter into. Um, I, so you, you mentioned this, I want to go back to what you're saying about this kind of like setting the course for the future and then meeting up with it later. Um, you told a story, I mean, just when, when I was many years ago, I don't, it was like 2012 when I was in the Code for America Accelerator. Um, I think it was around then. You told a story about 
your your Unix bibliography. Oh yeah, um, which I think is a really good practical example of of like how to apply that lesson. Can, can you tell that story? I'd, I'd love to hear it again from you. Oh, I, I'm not quite sure which lesson you're thinking it's a, it's an application of. I think it's an application of create more value than you capture. Uh, it was, uh, I had this notion, you know, you know, our books were just getting adopted in bookstores. You know, yeah. most of the computer books at the time were about, you know, personal computers and, you know, books on, on Unix and C programming and the like were, 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 so considered professional books, you know, and they were sold, uh, in, you know, in far fewer stores. They had a what was called short discounts. So bookstores didn't buy very many of them. And uh, we actually lucked into this because we were so, you know, one of the things that was great about us was we weren't publishers. So we didn't know what to do. So when, when we <laughs> you know, first started talking, we originally sold our books by mail order. Uh, you know, direct, direct mail. And then when we got discovered by bookstores, we we're like, okay, what kind of discounts do you guys get? <laughs> you know? right. and, they, and they told us their, their steepest discounts. And so we started selling our books at those discounts and they started, you know, like, so they bought a lot of them, you know, it's like the competitive yeah. books, you know, if they're, if there's two $30 books and one of them, they make 15 bucks on and the other, they make eight bucks on, they're going to go, wow, we'll sell a lot more of the, the one that we make more money on. We can discount it. We can do whatever. So we were right. really, you know, all of a sudden, uh, getting a lot of attention, but I thought, well, you know, there's not no, a lot of bookstores still don't really understand that there's a lot of demand for this stuff. You know, yeah. you know, Unix, the X window system, uh, then like the, the internet. And I thought, well, let me make a, a, a giveaway, which is a, a you know, a, a little pamphlet about, you know, here's a bibliography of the best books on Unix and the X window system. And I thought, well, I'm going to go list all the best books, you know, right. uh, including from my competitors, because after all, you know, I know we're not going to take over the world. Let's just sell the category. And uh, so I, I still remember going and talking to, you know, my competitors and saying, yeah, I want to list this. And they would all go, oh, well, this is my latest book. Put the latest book in. No, I go, no, the Henry McGilton book on Unix is way better than that one. Yeah, I'm putting the old one yeah. down. You know, but 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 the point was they were sort of shocked that I was um, doing this this promotional piece that wasn't just for my my books, but was for their books as well. Right. And, right. and, and you know, again, it's just more of this create more value than you capture. You know, the whole idea of like tell a story that helps everybody make the pie bigger. Right. Right. And, right. and, and that, so I, I always tried to do that in in, in my business. And, I, you know, it was yeah. even things, too, like people would say, you know, and this is particularly true in the early days. Now it's probably less true of the company. But, you know, go, why don't you have a book on such and such? And I go, oh, because there's already a good one out there from, you know, this competitor. Right. You know, why would we want to do another one? You know, there's too many there's too many things that have no no, you know, good books. So we're going to we're going to focus on just filling out the, the stuff that people need. You know? Right. Right. And, and, and that was really a kind of a, a kind of mission for us was who can we help? Right. Right. Well, no, it's beautiful. And I mean, I, you told that story again. And this is like 10 years ago, more or more at this point, but it, it stuck with me. But I guess the lesson that I took from it is is more of this kind of like creating the future. Also, like you, you created the wave. You, like you did your part to create like the Unix wave and you were situated to to catch that wave but in any event there was this, this idea that like you had the foresight to see that like 
these books needed to exist in the world and more people needed to read them. Um, yeah, I don't think it was, it was that. No. You know, foresight suggests that we were expecting an outcome. Yeah. Uh, you know, of, of we're going to, we're going to, later on, certainly I, you know, I, I would say I did some of that. But at that point, our first print runs of our first books on Unix were 100 copies. It was just like, like yeah. there's no no good documentation on this thing. Let's make it. Uh, the other thing that was very funny, we we were we were very idealistic. I, I remember in the early days when we first started our mail order book business, you know, this is before the days of taking money and people would actually have to send us a check. You know, it was it, you couldn't. You know, it, you know, you didn't really have, we didn't have any ability to take credit cards. It was not a provision, you know, where, I mean, we weren't even doing it over the internet. It was, or maybe, maybe with email. And we would yeah. just basically, people would order the book and we'd say, send us a check. And we put the book in the mail before we got the check. Yeah. You know? right. <laughs> and I don't think we ever didn't oh, get paid. Yeah. Oh man. Uh, you know, it was just like, yeah, you know, we, it was just this trust. And, and later on, of course, we yeah, really yeah. got a sense of just how badly people were hungering for this content. And then we, we, we kind of got, got more convinced of the size of the market. But in the beginning, it was just we were a tech writing consulting company. And when we had downtime, we thought we might as well do something useful. Right. <laughs> yeah, so we started yeah, writing manuals for software that we were using that didn't have any good manual. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it worked out well, clearly. Yeah. Actually, you, you you just reminded me of something else. You so I I was reading this po these posts that you've written about science fiction and about you know the books that have shaped you and in the the in the post about the books that have shaped you, you mentioned Rissa Kurgalin, which you, you already mentioned. Yeah, Kurgalin, Sorry. Um, but uh, you say the book gave you the courage to submerse yourself in the details of a fundamentally trivial business, technical writing, and to let go of your earlier hopes of writing deep books that would change the world. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I, I, do, you, do you still believe it's a fundamentally trivial business? Um, no, no, obviously it became, uh, it became yeah. very meaningful. But at the time, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I had, I had, you know, I'd had this idea. Yeah, you know, I'd been done this work with George Simon. I went to Harvard to study classics because I was really, uh, you know, it's sort of interesting because the whole idea of Web 2.0, which was a kind of, oh, we are building a global brain, yeah. you know, mediated by technology you know for me in the 70s was we are heading towards a global consciousness that's mediated by some kind of spiritual you know awakening or whatever right uh, and, and i yeah. thought i was writing about that you know i was going to be right. that was what i was going to be doing sort of ironic that i i did end up becoming the so if you like the the prophet of global consciousness uh, just you yeah know, mediated by technology rather than by uh you know this some kind of spiritual awakening yeah, I still think we're due for a spiritual awakening, but we are. That's we are. Topic. Yeah. Um, I mean, no, that's fascinating. I mean, so so you did at that point in your career, you you did have this ambition. I mean, you say you know you wanted to write deep books that would change the world, and but what you're saying is ultimately you still ended up doing that. Well, I mean, except it wasn't really the books that I did. I think the most influential things I did, I didn't actually write as books. I mean, again, I, I take that back. I mean. Clearly, our, our the books that we wrote and published played a pretty enormous role in enabling 
the internet. You know, back in 2000, when Publishers Weekly had a cover that said the internet was built with O'Reilly books. Uh, yeah, nobody right. thought that was an outrageous claim. You know, it was true. You know, we had a lot of people who started, you know, giant internet companies. So yeah, I started with an with some O'Reilly books, and yeah. uh, so uh, yeah, we, we in that sense, yes. But you know, the things that I did that you know, like convening the open source summit where the term open source was adopted and, and sort of spreading right. the narrative that this wasn't about some rebel movement that was hostile to commercial software. It was the foundation of the next generation of commercial software and commercial businesses. You know, it was a, a, yeah. a sort of a new map, you know, you know web two web 2.0, you know, what is it about the companies that survived the dot-com bust? You know, it was a new map, you know, Gov well, this is actually you know, Gov2O, you know, what, is it, uh, what does it look like if government starts acting like a platform? Uh, that was a new map. So all of those things yeah. were, you know, effectively uh, short form manifestos and PR work. And, you know, what we, the term I used earlier was meme engineering, telling a story yeah, yeah. about how to make sense of the world differently. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, I was actually going to bring that back up this this notion of meme engineering. I mean, uh, I would say like Gov 2.0 has been a, it's been a huge part of my career has been working in like the Gov 2.0 world, which yeah. is a, a concept that like, I guess you made up, right? Yeah. And um, yeah. Can you talk about this, this idea of meme engineering? I mean, do, do you have a, do you have a strategy or do you just. Well, uh, you know, at the time, you know, it was just a reflection of, of how I worked, which was you look at the world and you tell a story about it. Right. Uh, it's also a big piece of it were a set of skills that I learned from a guy named Brian Irwin, who who came to work for us as our head of PR in 1992, back when we first published the whole Internet User's Guide and Catalog. He had been the yeah. director of activism for the Sierra Club. Oh. And uh, he had been commuting from Santa Rosa down to San Francisco, and he wanted to have a local job where he didn't have to commute. <laughs> he discovered that we had this job. and. He, he really invented a lot of uh, influencer marketing techniques that are still practiced today. You know, you go find the influencers and at th 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 that point it was Usenet. But the other thing right. he did was like, he, he, I remember him saying to me, people don't care about your book or our books. Yeah. He said, they care about the topic <laughs> yeah. of our books. So we're not going to sell the books. We're going to sell the subjects, you know, and, and right. that's really where I got that from Brian, you know, so we went on, yeah, my first ever kind of PR tour was the internet is coming. The internet is coming, <laughs> right? And, and we yeah. were using, you know, we were using the whole internet user's guide and catalog to sell the internet, and then we of course right. we created, uh, you know, things like GNN, the Global Network Navigator, and Internet in a Box as products to help accelerate the adoption of the internet. And then, of course, a lot of my right. activism after that was about why, you know, we needed the web to be continue to be peer-to-peer, -peer, why we needed everyone to have a web server, not just be web browsers pointing at big central servers. And that right. led me down a path. And then, you know, of course, you know, open source software. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I started thinking, I, I kept thinking about the meaning of open source software, and I was dissatisfied with the narrative that it had to do with some special kind of license, because I, uh, I had been around you know, Berkeley Unix, which was, first of all, a very, very open license. And secondly, yeah. it was a large, you know, worldwide collaborative community enabled by Usenet and actually sending mag tapes around, you know, yeah. 
uh, with, with a license that was owned and controlled by AT&T, you know, originally. And, and I said, well, clearly, if you can have that kind of incredibly dynamic, uh, you know, community of software developers creating shared software contributing, it can't just be about license because AT&T's right. license was, was, was nothing, you know, they were, there were permissive practices. So I started telling a story about how this is really, you know, uh, has much more to do with the internet, you know, with how people are sharing differently and how they're able to collaborate differently, how they're able to connect differently. And I kept yeah. thinking about that and following that thread. And then that led me down the path to, you know, how the internet was more and more changing software development. And, and, and then I came to this idea that, okay, was, a, you know, again, you, I read things and I take them in and go, oh, somebody just gave me another piece of the puzzle. You know, in that particular yeah. case, there was a guy named Dave Stutz who had been a uh, he'd been an open source lead at Microsoft uh, do, doing various things, and he left and and he wrote a lot. Of, he wrote this farewell letter to Microsoft, which was about why they should be embracing the commodification of software. And yeah. I thought, oh, that's another one of these things, you know, collaboration, community, commodification, you know. And I started thinking yeah. about how software was being commoditized. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how the PC had, in, in some ways, commoditized hardware, which had been the, the source of IBM's lock-in. And yeah. I went, oh, okay, so the internet and you know, open source and free software are commoditizing the kind of software universe that Microsoft controlled, what comes next? And of course right. that led me to, well, when the internet is a platform, you know, uh, it's going to be a platform that's about data. You know, in some sense, this, if, if the internet is becoming an operating system, it's going to be a data operating system. It's going to be about identity, yeah. about location. And so I started thinking about data and you know, came up with principles like data is the new intel inside. Uh, you know, started talking about big data, started talking about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, distributed computation and how all these things were aspects of this new internet as platform. And then, of yeah. course, uh, Dale Doherty came up with the name Web 2.0, which is when it really took off. <laughs> okay, amazing. This is this is incredible. You act. You just remind. I had a conversation with Mark Sermon maybe like a year ago. So he's the executive director of Mozilla. Um, but it's about a lot of what you were just saying about like open source license, like like the license being like not the whole story, right? And that's increasingly true as people interact with software that's run on somebody else's server over right. you know over the web um and so i'm, I'm you heard it here first i'm, I'm going to start the web 2.1 movement we got to like ditch all the like the web 3 stuff and go back and ha have keep having these conversations because i we're all using software as a service now and it's amazing um a lot of it's built on open source tooling but the way that these services are governed and managed is completely yeah. inscrutable um and well, oftentimes the thing that's know, really this is really the big frontier of open source today is is uh is um llms you know and this is you know yeah. you have the big centralized uh systems that are being run by open ai google and microsoft and then you have you know facebook has ended up getting behind smaller models uh you know that can be distributed and open source and yeah and it's sort of interesting because the big guys are saying, oh, oh you, know, you know, doing a lot of FUD, you know, you actually, this has to be regulated because, and, and only yeah. the big guys can regulate it uh, because it's such a dangerous technology. And I have to say, I think, 
you know, there are some risks, but it's really being overblown. I think it's being overblown by people who have a vested interest in having this be big and centralized and, and under the control of a few players uh, rather than decentralized, because it is a very disruptive technology and it is potentially a reset. And, and I first started thinking about this one at O'Reilly. We built uh, a, a search engine we called O'Reilly Answers against mm -hmm. uh, the content on our platform, which is you know tens of thousands of, of eBooks, tens of thousands of hours of video. And we'd always had a, a solar based you know, solar being an old open source search engine technology. And it was always yeah. like whack-a-mole, you know, and suddenly, you know, with machine learning, you could build, uh, you know, a plain language search engine that would take you right to the, you know, the paragraph that you were looking for, right to the minute of a video. And I went, right. whoa, this is super disruptive. For the first time in 20 years, we can search our own content better than Google can. And, and I thought, wow, you know, this is, is really potentially dis very disruptive. And then, of course, out came ChatGPT and you, everybody was like, yeah, this is uh, it, it is really going to change the game. And we're, we're really just in the early stages of, you know, th this is like when Jim Alchin was, uh, you know, Microsoft was saying open source is a cancer, you know, and everybody's like, oh, these small open source <laughs> large language models are are really dangerous, you know, they're going to destroy everything. We, we, we need to, you know, and I guess, again, that would, I guess, be something else that's a big part of what I do is pattern recognition. And I go, yeah, there's no guarantee that the pattern will repeat, but it sure looks suspicious. <laughs> yeah, no, and a, and a lot of, I think a lot of the arguments in case of like in favor of open source software in terms of security and just the ability to scrutinize what's going on in there are yeah. obviously applicable to the, these models. Yeah, well, but um, also just the, the power asymmetry um, oh yeah, you know it. You know, it's sort of like it, if if a few big guys have enormous power and they're basically denying that power to individuals and the smaller companies, um, you know, we all become clients. And that's to me, there's a there's a very interesting thing here because an LLM, in some sense, is a obviously they capture the state of the internet at a particular point in time, right. But they capture a huge amount of the knowledge that's been on the internet, which you, before you needed someone like Google to search, and now it's sort of there encapsulated in the model. And then if you can if you can ground the model in like in like in our case with professional content that's been vetted, you actually can get better right. results than you can, you know, like I, you know the example I always use, like okay, if you were trying to get legal advice, do you want it to be coming from Reddit, or do you want it to be coming from uh, you know uh, Westlaw? You know? Right, right. You know, and uh, you may want to have the thing trained on on Reddit so it can understand the questions, but you want to have the answers come from from actual legal citations, <laughs> not ones <laughs> something that, that like, <laughs> yeah, something that doesn't hallucinate. It's funny. I actually asked, um, I asked ChatGPT, I'm like, which technology leaders uh, have read Dune, and it was like, oh, Jeff Bezos loves Dune. Steve Jobs loves dude. And it had all these stories about like Steve Jobs. It said something like Steve Jobs used to like quoted in meetings. There's there's no evidence of this anywhere. Like I, I you know, went and actually tried to search to find this. And it's like ChatGPT was so confident. It's like, oh yeah, like obviously Steve Jobs loves Dune. Um it was anyway, it's hilarious. But um this actually brings me I want to sort of bring this back to the Rilke poem, which I love. I mean, like we talked before we recorded, you mentioned I went and read it. Um it, it it's a spectacular poem this notion that we should be grappling with huge problems and 
and the only way to grow is by letting ourselves, I mean, it may not necessarily letting ourselves be defeat, defeated, but by like straining ourselves against these kinds of things. And I, this might be a little hyperbolic, but like, I do feel like these large language models are, and just advances we're seeing in AI, we are confronting technology that we can't quite understand anymore. Like we can't program it. Um, and I'm curious if you see like a parallel there, like, are we creating like megafauna that we're going to have to contend with? I don't and know. Is that a good or uh, bad thing? <laughs> I guess I think, I think the notion of, uh, the, we can't explain these things. We can't control them. It's just overstated. You know, I mean, yeah. for the average person, the, the systems that we have, nobody can control anyway. Right. I mean, you know, uh, there's all kind. you know, you just look at any system made with our existing programming techniques. Uh, there are so many interactions and so many layers that right. it, it, it's impossible to for any, anyone to be able to, to understand all of it or, or to fix it. It takes massive amounts of work. This this, you know. And to me, there's, there's some aspects. First of all, you can program. You look at some of the prompts that you know people are writing. They're really small programs, you know. And it's I think you're going to get it's a lot true. better at effectively programming these things. I think yeah. that we are uh, going to figure out, yeah, you know, I mean, how to get better at at, at creating ones that are, are more reliable. I mean, this is just, it, this reminds me a lot of the narrative about the early web, for example, mm -hmm. that uh, everybody looked at it and said, but look, it's, you know, the UI is crappy. Oh, look, right. the, the latency is bad. Oh, look, right. you know, and, and you kind of go, did you not read Clayton Christensen? <laughs> this right. is a disruptive technology. It's not a sustaining technology, you know? Uh, and yes, it will start out being worse at many things. Right. Yeah. But, but it'll get better faster well, than we expect. And, and, and I guess the, 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 the other thing that you, you see consistently throughout all of the history of uh, technology is it's human machine symbiosis. It's not human replacement. You right. know, maybe one day we can imagine that we'll get to replacement, but is that, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, when I think about that, I go, okay, uh, you can look at a, bicycle very clearly as an augmentation of of a of a human you know like right. slowly you know pedal powered uh right. an automobile it's a little bit more like no this is just a device right and yeah we control it right yeah but then we you get to you get to a big uh airliner uh and you go well you know somebody else controls it maybe maybe you know, yeah. I remember talking with, I was on a, somebody's private plane once and I was up there. I won't say who it, was, who it was up there. And I said, oh, yeah, we're we're up cruising above the clouds. And I go, uh, I guess this is where you have it on autopilot. You know, you, you just have to take off and land. And he says, no, 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 it's the other way around. This is where we get to fly. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you're going to a busy airport, the autopilot is, is what takes off and lands the plane. You know, interesting. And, and I don't know if that's always the case, but. But certainly we as humans are just along for the ride. 
you know, and yeah, that'll be true for a lot of people in the age of AI. But yeah. uh, the the net net is it's an augmentation. Right. Even so, even though it's not, an, you know, like again, you know, like compare a bicycle where it's literally okay, it's very directly augmenting me, but like, hey, it's an augmentation that I can get to to Europe in ten hours from San Francisco, you know, right. and uh, nobody understands, you know, with their smartphone. You know, they're they're not kind of going. Oh my God, this is terrible. You know, it's like this could misdirect me. Yeah. Oh my God, you know, and they say things like, "Oh my God, I'm you know being tracked all the time by Google." But they don't. You know, it's sort of interesting. Again, that goes back to like like the the narrative about privacy seems wrong to me because the issue isn't are they tracking me? The issue is what are they doing when they track me? You know, in the case of, right. of Google with Maps, uh, they're working for me. You know, in the case right. of say my my credit card selling my location to an advertiser, maybe they're not working for me. If certainly if that my uh, you know my car were to report me to my insurance company, you know, you kind of go, well, that's kind of not working for me. So you know, we're right. not even asking the right questions about these technologies. You know, we totally we, agree. We have a narrative yeah. that is making us afraid rather than making us like look at the the strengths the weaknesses and and how to apply the technology more effectively right to to, to achieve no, actually, our goals right well now, and I'll, I'll add i mean to your your points about like people not understanding the technology we have now and us being sort of at the mercy of it the, the same thing applies to like capitalism like just the markets that yeah like, dominate our lives or american democracy or any other kind of governing system like they're in, inscrutable to most people, and it, it's not like any one person can. Well, and them. uncontrollable. Yeah. I mean, that's I think. Yeah, they can't, that, yeah. right. And, and that's why I love this Charlie Strauss term, where he said, uh, Corey Doctorow uses the same concept. You know, that, that corporations, governments, uh, all institutions are simply slow AIs. You know, they are artificial. <laughs> that's a good one. I see my wife Jen Palka's book behind you on the yes, shelf, of course. Uh, you know, which is all about why government is so hard to control. And right. nobody can manage all the layers. There's hundreds of uh, hundreds of years of accumulated cruft, and we can start to figure out how to get back in the driver's seat. But we're not in the driver's seat now. No, uh, for so many things. And, and, but, but anyway, but all this kind of comes yeah. back around to the big challenges. You yeah. know, we shouldn't despair. We we just need to tackle these big challenges, and with all the tools at our disposal. And do our right, damn right. damnedest to solve them. I do think that there's a a really interesting time coming up because the challenges that are coming at us are so large. Uh, you know, climate yeah. change is obviously the biggest, but you know, climate change brings with it you know political instability, mass migrations, uh, challenges in agriculture, clean water. It's not just energy. It's not just wildfires. It's warfare, you know, and effectively that our interconnected world, boy, I'll tell you, you know, one of the things that AI can really help us with is actually managing some of those things. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named Paul Cohen. I used to be a uh, the AI uh, program manager at, at DARPA. He was a uh, professor at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, maybe, but he, he, uh, he said, uh, uh, the opportunity of AI is to help humans model and manage complex interacting systems. 
we need to That's get a better one. There's actually a really, really good yeah. book I just read recently. I mean, it's got a simple idea. It's called The New Goliaths. Um, hmm. and, and I thought it was going to be a book about, you know, the, the big tech giants, but it really isn't. It's about con industry concentration across all industries uh, being enabled by I IT. And he, he has uh, the fundamental idea he has is that uh, in the modern economy, management of complexity is is kind of the economic frontier. The people who are best yeah. at managing hmm. complexity are the winners. And uh, which I thought was very, very interesting thesis. I can't remember it the name of the author. It's just gone out of my head. Same as James Besson. Okay. <clears throat> he also read a okay. book called Learning by Doing, which I really liked. It was about the uh, industrial revolution and skilled labor versus unskilled labor. Anyway, let, let, right. let's leave it with kind of, I want to bring it back around to Frank Herbert because. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's bring it around of, and wrap it up. Of, uh, if we were to take a lesson from Frank Herbert and put it together with that James Besson idea about managing complexity, Frank would yeah. tell us that we don't want to manage the complexity out of complexity. We want to surf the wave of complexity, you know, kind of ride it. I remember yeah. that was actually one of the things that uh, Frank told me when, when, when I told him I was writing a book about uh, Dune. And, you know, I, I had met him on the road, you know, when he was doing interviews or whatever. And and he said, and when I found whether it was his, maybe it was his granddaughter, said, whatever you do, don't dullify it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's a, uh, uh, he told me that story. And I, I kind of feel like, you know, that's that's our opportunity. How do we use these technologies to, you know, exalt in the complexity, you know, in yeah. the way that a surfer exalts in the complexity, the way that a, you know, a skier exalts in the complexity, the way that, that we exalt in the complexity in our lives, rather than trying to, to tame it. You know, right. it's like these are tools to help us balance, to help us ride the waves, to help us navigate. And I think we, we have the possibility to give ourselves the superpowers that we need. I love that. Th thank you. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, I'm really glad to have you on. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Right. Thanks a lot for having me, Jed. Wow. I love that conversation. I recorded that a little over six months ago on July 18th, 2023. Uh, I'm recording this on February 5th, 2024. Uh, my original plan was to get this out the door in September of last year in advance of uh, Dune Part 2. But uh, fortunately, kind of, for me, the writer's strike pushed the release date back and I got a little extra time to figure out how hard it is to start a podcast. But uh, here we are, and if you're listening to this, I just want to say thank you. Uh, this is a real labor of love for me. I actually did start this podcast because I believe that by talking about literature, we can create better technology. If you enjoyed this, I just want to share a few ideas of how you can help. The first thing you could do is share this with somebody who you think would find it interesting. Uh, that's how I want to grow this audience. Uh, you can also leave a review wherever you leave reviews for podcasts. And um, if you want to reach out to me directly and send me feedback directly, you can at jed at textsontexts.net. If you really want to show some support, um, we actually don't have any way to donate financially. I don't have a Patreon or anything like that, 
I also don't want to allow any advertising on this podcast. Uh, this to me is a public service and it's something that is I want to do just because I think it's important and I want to have these conversations. Um, but if you really insist on opening your wallet, I encourage you to instead donate to Radiant Earth. Uh, my day job is as executive director of Radiant Earth. We're a, a nonprofit focused on making Earth science data more accessible to more people and easier to use. Uh, we're hoping that that will accelerate sustainability research and other kinds of environmental research. If that sounds interesting to you, you can go to radiant.earth. And if you want to donate, you can go to radiant.earth slash donate. And then finally, this is maybe a long shot, but I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to manifest, uh, as they say these days. If you or anyone you know has grants that they offer to support uh, humanities education and engagement with the humanities, I would love to hear from you about that. Again, it's jed at textontext.net. If you want to email me, it's jed at textontext.net. Uh, I want to, again, thank Tim O'Reilly for being so gracious and so generous uh, with his time. It, really, that conversation was a tremendous gift to me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, my intro music is by Secret School, and the outro music is a song called Three-Tenths of the Population by We. And I will be including links to them and a few other things that Tim and I talked about in the show notes. Thank you again for listening, and I hope to see you in about a month. Bye.